So uh, we're going to spend a bit of time just now opening up this psalm. And uh, you'll have noticed uh, right at the start of the psalm, it speaks about uh, the fact that David vowed not to rest until a certain thing had come to pass, okay? So the, the title, if you like, of the sermon is No Rest. We're going to explore a little bit about that. But let me first say this. Uh, I think it's true that we go out of our way uh, to seek comfort in the things that we love. We go out of our way to seek comfort in the things that we love. Uh, we're even prepared sometimes to deny ourselves rest or sleep to get the things that we love. So once upon a time, three years ago, I was in New York City, and I was there with a bunch of other Christian ministers, and we were kind of training in the whole church planting thing and learning how to think through the process of church planting. And many of my fellow colleagues and ministers there were very fond of coffee, and so much so that some of them, we all stayed in a particular part of New York, and we got, all got up every morning and made the trek through across the train, under the water, across into Manhattan, and all the way down into the office where we were studying. They made us get up early to hit the best coffee shops en route. Now, you may be thinking that's completely ridiculous. Uh, what a waste of time. What a waste of sleep. I had to get up early and lose some rest to sample some of the best, finest coffee shops. So sleep was lost, and routines were disrupted, and trains were missed, and all kinds of confusion ensued, so we could sample the finest of New York's coffee. Okay, that was a priority. Uh, I remembered another occasion when I had to get up very early for a particular experience. When I was, I don't know, about 16, I had a best friend who I played football with all the time, and his dad coached our football team. Uh, he was a great guy, very active, and he loved hill walking and climbing. Now, I'd never, I didn't, I walked around the hills around Perth, but nothing serious. Uh, and he was like, oh, I'm going to go with my friend to climb a couple of Munros. So I said, I'll come, having no clue what was in store for me. So the hills were away over the other side, Arica or somewhere like that. So he said, okay, I'll pick you up at four in the morning. So uh, I wasn't used to that. That completely disrupted my entire equilibrium and made me feel very bad that day when I had to get up at four o'clock in the morning in the dark and drive for a couple of hours and then start climbing what felt like a vertical peak to me. And then we kind of came out above the clouds, as it were, and I realized why. And I realized how worth it it was, because it was incredibly beautiful. And I was incredibly tired, but it was incredibly worth it. You see, so we invest in things that we think are very important. We're even prepared to put ourselves out for things that we think are very important. So I wonder what it is for you. What do you invest in? What are you prepared to kind of uh, have your life disrupted around. In verse 1, a king, not David, but another king, speaks about David, saying to God, oh God, remember David, because he loved you so much, and he was so uh, keen for you to be worshipped, and for the right, appropriate sense of worship to be at the center of the community, the covenant community of God's people, that he went without rest. He, he decided, I'm going to, I'm not going to, now I don't know exactly how long this lasted for, but it says here, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids 
until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. So what's worth expending yourself for? What's worth disrupting your schedule for? Coffee? A view above the peaks across the land that you love? A sense of the right worship of God is what is at the heart of this psalm. So that, that's kind of the theme that really arises as we, as we, uh, as we look at this psalm. And that's what I just want to r- lift up before you just as we start thinking about it. Now, the problem with a psalm like this, sometimes you can read it and find it a little bit impenetrable. If you like, there isn't a way in. Okay, that, okay I can understand that. It's talking about a guy who's not going to go to bed until something's happened. And then other parts of the psalm seem a little bit dense. There's quite a lot going on, really, in many ways. So here's how I want to do this, secondly. First thing was just to kind of pick out this theme about David's uh, and the, the psalm's desire for an appropriate sense of worship for God. Second thing we're going to do is just pick out the core pillars of the psalm, because there are some strands that are woven throughout these verses that are integral to the kind of whole biblical picture, if you like. And I want to do this by just showing you an example. I'm going to show you a picture if this works. There you go. There's a picture. So this is a picture of a building in Portland called Portlandia. Um, I'd never seen it before until a couple of days ago when I started uh, trying to find this kind of building. The reason I was trying to find this kind of building is because the man who built it, a man called Mr. Graves, is one of the uh, most significant, apparently, postmodern architects. Now, I had to study a bit of architecture when I was at uni, and I've forgotten everything about it except for one thing, and that is one of the most significant strains or sort of strands of architecture that run right through hundreds and hundreds of years back into classical tradition is the kind of the Greek classic tradition. Now, this isn't Greek. This is in Portland. It wasn't built that long ago. Uh, In fact, it's already needing a complete renovation because maybe it wasn't built very well. But here's the thing about this building and this kind of architecture. You might look at that and think, it's sort of a bit pink. It's got orange bits on it and some blue. Uh, There are some windows and some straight lines. But actually, a lot of postmodern architecture is a kind of modern mishmash of early foundational principles. So what a lot of architects like Mr. Graves were trying to do was say, let's do a modern expression of the foundational principles of our architectural practice. So I read this about it. Graves himself says this, it's a symbolic gesture, an attempt to reestablish a language of architecture and values. Okay? He's saying, I want to give a fresh expression of what is really important you know, architectural people get really excited about these kind of things. And you're, you're maybe thinking, really? But here's why. Let me give you a bit of kind of architectural speak. Here's some examples of what they get excited about. Uh, the building attempts to create a continuum between past and future. Past, present, and future. It's a symmetrical block with stucco-covered rectangular facades, I see you nodding along, recognizing all the architectural terms I'm giving you here, featuring reinterpreted classical elements such as overscaled keystones, pilasters, and belvederes. 
The building is set on a two-story base reminiscent of a Greek pedestal which divides it into the classical three-part partition, base, body, and top. Now you, now you know, so you can go home happy, because what we're seeing here is somebody saying, I really value the foundational principles of my particular discipline, what I've spent all my life studying and thinking about, and I'm going to reinterpret it for my generation. Ironically, apparently, most Portland residents hate it, so that's kind of a shame, isn't it, that he went to all that trouble and uh, nobody really likes it too much. Okay, I think we're done with the picture. But here's the point. In this psalm, we have elemental, uh, foundational principles from God that He wants us to understand thoroughly always. So, this is an ancient uh, text, if you like, given to us from God, this old psalm. And in it, what I'm going to do just now is pick out four key pillars, if you like, amongst many that the Bible give us, that if we get a good handle on, if we get really familiar with, then we get a real sense, we hopefully get a real sense of the enjoyment of these great strains of biblical principles and text, okay? So, the first one is, when we look into the psalm, kingship. There's the first one that I want to just mention. Look at verse 10. Here's the speaker. Here's the person who's bringing us this psalm. For the sake of your servant, David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Kind of speaking about himself there. Your anointed one. This is about a king who's seeking the right, appropriate worship of God, referring to, speaking about another king who is the anointed one, David, the second king of Israel. If you like, the king of the golden age of Israel, the king that many looked back to and said, here was a great king, a really wonderful king who came after Saul, uh, brought about much good and much blessing for the people of God. So, this theme of kingship is immediately um, key. Now, the king, what was the point of the king? Not just to wear a crown and be impressive and mighty and ride a great horse off the battle every so often. The point of a king was to seek to lead the people in the ways of God and and, and to bring the people again and again under God's overarching kingship. That was what the kings were to do. That was what they so very often failed to do. So actually, when we, kind of, when we open up this psalm a bit more, what we find is a sense of trying to get back to uh, leading the people, having the worship of God at the center of things as it really should be. So kingship is a really important theme, biblical theme. Um, we read about other kings who really failed, as I mentioned. Saul, already touched on, the first king of Israel, if you read about him, he ended up in a really terrible way, really jealous and bitter. His relationship with God was really broken. Even Solomon, David's son, wonderful king, wisest of kings, went really badly astray. But here there's a renewed sense of the, the rightness of the king leading the people under the overall lordship or kingship of God. Specifically here, we see this in verse 6 and 7. Now, I'm going to come back and talk about the ark as another principle in just a minute. But just to give you a sense of what's happening here, the ark was, if you like, the, the furniture of the worship place of God that God came down and descended upon. But for a time in Israel's history, it wasn't in the place it should be. 
It wasn't, it wasn't in the, the sort of central worship sanctuary, if you like. And so here, in verse 6, we read, Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. And then later on, it speaks about uh, the ark. Arise, O Lord, go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. So that's, that's what the king's trying to do. He's trying to physically take a part of the, the furniture that aided the worship of God, and we'll, we'll come back to this, and put it where it should be. Kingship's an important theme. And as we'll see, kingship is something that the Bible comes back to time and time again until we meet the ultimate king. Second theme, briefly, covenant. Now, you've probably heard this loads of times if you're regular at church. Covenant's a really important theme in this psalm, okay? Verse 11, look at what is spoken about here. The king is trying to do something, but he's not doing it just for the sake of it or because he thinks it's a good idea or because it's all in his own strength. Verse 11, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. So he says there, I have made a covenant with you. David, at the start of the psalm, is, is praised because of what he endeavored to do. But a really core thing for all of God's people, right from, if you like, the Genesis of God revealing himself to people has been that God has said, I, in my grace, make a covenant, a promise with you, with Abraham, with Moses, with David. And the covenant specifically here, again, this would have made loads of sense to the people who were singing and reading this psalm, using it in its original context, was the promise of lineage. To the king, I promise that if you follow me, I will set your son on the throne and establish your lineage, if you like. And that was good, because if that happened, then the covenant-worshipping community would carry on. So that was, that was at the heart, again, of the worshipping community, to have a sense of continuity and progression. So kingship, covenant, the promise of sonship, which we're not exploring in great detail, but that's there. Thirdly, I want to return to this theme of the ark, okay? Because you might this evening never really have thought about the ark before. You might not even know what I'm talking about. So again, it's uh, said uh, in verse 8, Arise, O Lord, go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. What? You might be saying. The ark, when God uh, progressively revealed himself to his people to the point where he said, okay, I want you, even on your travels, to have a, a kind of tent that you set up on your travels. This is the place where I will reveal myself to your leader. Uh, I want you to create a, a wooden structure called an ark, and on it I want you to place a seat. And on that seat, I will come down and, as it were, in a in an in a amazing way and in a sort of temporary way, and I will be there at the center of your community to communicate with you, to be present with you so that you can hear from me and learn from me. This was a really significant piece of, uh, if you like, sacred furniture for these people. So, uh, you can read about this if you go to Exodus chapter 25. 
We read in verse 21, you shall put the mercy seat, this is like the, if, on top of the ark, on top of this structure, the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So you see how significant that is. Again, to us, we may think, oh, that's, I don't have much to do with that. That's very distant. It's very different to the way that we worship. But in these days, this is the way God communicated with his people. So in other words, it was really important that this piece of furniture was where it should be. What happened if it wasn't at the central worship space of the Israelites? Well, that indicated that something was going wrong. There was some kind of distance. There's a passage in 1 Samuel which speaks about a place called Kiriath-Jairim. Now, Jairim is the plural of the singular jar, which we meet in verse 6, the fields of jar. It's speaking about a time where the ark uh, was being transported around for different reasons, and it was kept in this place in Kiriath-Jairim for a while, and it became uh, the pursuit of David to get it to Jerusalem, to the place of worship where it should be. So again, you can, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. You can go back and trace the history of this if you follow the references in your Bible. But it was key for the purposes of this worshiping community to have a right order of these things. And this is, again, at the heart of, this, of, of making sense of the principles of this psalm. So for these people, having this object in the right place indicated that worship was being done as it should be. And so that begs the question, God no longer requires St. Columbus to have the ark square and central. But do you think about the worship of God? What is the, what is the appropriate way to worship Him? Do you care about the way that you worship and that we worship? Is it done as a matter of routine? Is it done because you've always done it? And does it just involve just coming here? Does it involve your heart and your mind and the Word of God, it's himself, uh, God's Word, revealing to us how we're to worship? So just let me throw open that question just now. How do we worship? Why do we worship? It was really important for these people to have the ark. And that's because, one more thing on this, okay? One more thing. What God said was that he will, make, he will make it his resting place when he came down to dwell amongst the Israelites. Now, if you were to go through this psalm again, go home tonight, and uh, when you've recovered from the heat and you've had a glass of lemonade or something, read the psalm again, and notice the amount of time it speaks about resting place, dwelling place for God. Think about that for a minute. How important would that be for a restless, traveling community of people, hemmed in on all sides often by people who are out to crush them as a people, for God to make his dwelling with them? Think about how important that was. Think about how significant. If they were a covenant community, to know that the Lord was with them and was present with them. We're going to put up another reading uh, from Ezekiel, because this theme of resting place the dwelling of God with his people, again, is all the way through the Bible. It's so significant. Think about uh, the Garden of Eden. What was that? 
It was a place where God came down and walked with Adam and Eve. Think about, as I've mentioned, the tabernacle, which became the temple. Think about the incarnation of Jesus, where he himself came down and for that amazing time spent time with humanity in that very physical way. And also, of course, there's the great promises of Revelation, where it speaks about the fact that God will make his dwelling amongst his people. But let me just read you this passage from Ezekiel. Okay, so follow this through. Uh, It's a wonderful passage. Say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone and will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king over them all, and they shall be no longer two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them, They shall all have one shepherd. Now, there are many echoes here, biblical words and phrases and, again, strains. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. Now again, sorry, my dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. There are, again, those words, those resonances, those phrases, the king, the the covenant that God has made, the sense of taking his people, gathering them together, and there at the end, making his dwelling with them, expressed just in that passage in Ezekiel. Just to show you again the way that that theme runs throughout the whole biblical picture. It's so important for God's people to have a sense of him dwelling amongst them. Now, of course, the great blessing that you and I have nowadays is that God, Jesus said to his followers, I will send my spirit. Your body is now the temple in which the spirit dwells. Again, that's all about the presence of God with us. So a great biblical theme here, the ark, the resting place of God, the place where God dwells with his people. Finally, finally, the last section of the psalm speaks about Uh, In verse 17, there I will make a horn to sprout for David. Now, again, this is a, a, you may be surprised to hear, a biblical pillar, a foundation. may sound a bit abstract at the moment, but what's this all about? We get to the last section here. Um, Verse 17, I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. The horn, speaking of the, say, the horn of an animal, signifies strength. And what's being spoken of just in picture form here, again, just giving us hints, theme, biblical themes and resonances, is of the ultimate fulfillment that will show us the mightiness of God and the salvation of God. Okay, because this is a passage that really prefigures the ultimate king, 
the fulfillment, the Savior that God always knew he was going to send to be the true Savior, the true rescuer for his people, and that is, of course, Jesus Christ himself. Now, you may be thinking, how on earth can you get from this to Jesus? But let me just read these words from Luke 1, and we've already read this in the reading earlier. Luke chapter 1, Zechariah says these words, speaking about the joy of hearing of the coming of the Messiah, Jesus. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. He said, here's it, this is it, this is the news. He has redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant, David. So, there's language from the New Testament echoing this psalm, speaking about the strength of God fulfilled finally and completely in Jesus Christ Himself. And so, what that means is that God reveals Himself uh, through His Word in promises, in prophecies, in pictures that are fulfilled when Jesus comes. The great, the great display of the strength of God to conquer what we couldn't, sin, to be the one who paid the price through His weakness as He determined to set His face toward the cross for His people because of His covenant promise. Uh, and so, He is, again, the, the great King, the great one who is now at the right hand of the Father, ascended on high. So, again, we're just linking up here some of the, the pillars, if you like, the great, the great uh, standpoints that run throughout this psalm and throughout the Old Testament and throughout uh, the whole biblical narrative. The strength of God in Jesus is the goodness and the kindness of the self-sacrificial, giving God who loves His people. Why is this good news? Why is this whole theme of the worship of God, of, of uh, God Himself, of the appropriacy of worshiping Him, why is it so central to this king? Why is it so central to David? And why should it be at the center of your heart still tonight. Well, I want to show you a parallel, and then we're done, okay? Look at what it looks like when, when God is honored and when worship is at the heart of a community. Look at this parallel. We're going to read verse 9, and then we're going to read from verse 14. Uh, let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. Okay, so that is the concern of the king who seeks the worship of God. Let the, let the priests be clothed with righteousness. Let the saints shout for joy. Now, go to verse 14. What do we read there? Here we get, if you like, at the end of the psalm, the promise of God responding to all that has been said. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. God says that. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. What does it look like when God is honored, when worship is at the heart of the community of God's people? Well, it looks like a place where salvation is proclaimed. In this context, through the priests, those who ministered before the people, and between God and the people. Now we hear of the great one who gave of himself, uh, our king, the great uh, priest forever, Jesus, the one who gave himself as the sacrifice, so that salvation 
can be declared. You can know freedom from sin, forgiveness, and new life in Jesus. That is spoken of amongst us. That's good news. Secondly, it's a place where the needy are cared for. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Is that the case? Do we look up to God and do we ourselves, as we are often told so often in in the pages of the New Testament, seek to be those who look out to the needy and give to them, welcome in the, if you like, the alienated, those who are oppressed, those who are isolated, who feel lonely, who feel friendless, who are poor, and do we love them and do we share with them? Do Do we give as we have received from the great grace of our Lord God? And it's a place where the believers are filled with joy. Now, that's a challenge, isn't it? And it's a place where the believers are filled with joy because they've heard the news of the proclamation of the salvation that comes because of the great King, Jesus. So again, are we a a community which heralds amongst us the news of the great King, which seeks to give to others because we have been blessed, and that is filled with joy filled with joy because of the work that God has accomplished, that He always planned to accomplish, that He worked out, and that we can read about through the pages of this book. Do you have a passion for that? Will you be prepared to expend yourself for that kind of community, for that sense of worship? I read one commentator described that the way he summarized this passage was as a passion for the church. So the psalm is talking about the Old Testament, Old Covenant community, but the principles are of honoring God, seeking to have the worship of God at the core of who we are. A passion for the church, a people who know the King and who joyfully rejoice in Him. Is that your heart's passion tonight? I'm going to pray, and we're finished. Lord, we praise and honor your name. You're the one who's revealed yourself to so many people all over the world through many customs and cultures, but you always reveal yourself as the covenant-making and keeping God, the great Lord, the great provider, the great Savior, the Holy One who redeems His people. Uh, And though we read of uh, these verses, we read of something that often seems quite alien to us, please help us to understand it and help us to respond joyfully because uh, we can sing of your goodness to us because you have done a great thing in the gospel. Amen.